Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Now in those days, when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they prayed, they laid hands on them. And then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. Now this morning, as we take a fresh look at this passage, we have a clear goal this morning of what we want to accomplish as we go through these seven verses, verse by verse. And here's our goal. Our goal today is to see if we can understand God's character, to understand God's love, to get a picture of who he is and what are the things that he cares about. And so whenever we open scripture, it's our hope that we get to know God a little bit better through that experience. And so this goal is not unique to what we're doing here this morning, but this is always our goal when we gather here in church on Sunday mornings, is to understand God's word and God himself a little bit better. Because we want to know him more. We love him. We're in a relationship with him. And when you love someone and you're in a relationship with him, you want to get to know him more. We love him and we hope to spend eternity with God. On top of that, we hope that by learning these things and understanding God better, that we see things that we can apply to our own lives and how we live and make choices on a day-to-day basis so that we can become more like God. So this is our goal this morning, to get to know God a little bit better at the end of our hour together than we knew him when we came in, so that we can become more like him. So we're going to do that by examining in detail these seven verses. We'll go through them again, verse by verse, in a second. But I just kind of want to look at the flow of the story that's taking place here. So this is a very symmetrical story. We start with a growing church in verse 1, and then something happens. It's injustice in the community of the church. It's the neglect of the widows in the daily distribution. And this injustice is threatening the unity of the church. It's hardly the first threat that we've had to the church. In fact, the entire book of Acts has been full of threats to the church. We had um, Peter and John being arrested multiple times and taken before um, judges and priests to stand trial. We had um, Ananias and Sapphira with their sort of religious grandstanding, trying to pretend that they were part of the community when in fact they were lying to the Holy Spirit. But now we have a new kind of threat in that this threat is not coming from the outside against the church. This is something that's happening inside the church that's threatening the unity of the church. And so it requires a response from the church. And this is a good story. It's got a happy ending. The church gets the response right. Praise God. And so when they do, unity is restored. The unity that was threatened, that they've experienced the entire history of the church up to this point. They've been unified. They've been of of one mind, of one soul. And it almost comes apart because of this situation. But because of their godly response, unity is restored. Justice is done. And then with verse 7, the church grows more. So we come back to this church growth multiplication of disciples. In fact, in verse 7, it's breakthrough growth. It's growth that we haven't seen before. So I'll leave this little outline uh, up on the screen as we go through these seven verses, verse by verse, and then we'll make a list of things that we can observe about God's character, 
um, as a result of going through these verse by verse. So if you have your Bible with you, I encourage you to follow along in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. Verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. So, there's a lot happening in this verse. We'll spend more time on this verse than we will the other six, because I want to make sure we understand the problem and why it's significant. So the first thing that we have to understand is what is the daily distribution? What's happening here? What's, what's being threatened? Well, you remember in Acts chapter 4, we learned that the disciples, and in fact the entire multitude, had kind of given up their personal property to the church. So everyone was selling the things that they owned, bringing it to the church, laying it at the apostles' feet, and sharing all things in common. And so, when that happens, they had to set up some kind of system to make sure that everybody had what they needed on a day-to-day basis. And what they came up with is a daily distribution, and we know from the passage that it's food we're talking about. And so there's some kind of daily food distribution that's happening, that's meeting the needs of the people in the community. So I don't know whether it was a buffet line. I don't know whether they were going door to door and delivering meals. We don't know that. But we know that on a daily basis, food was being distributed, um, and it was to meet people's needs. And widows were being neglected. Now this is a really big deal because a widow is a person who has a very low standing in common society at this time. First of all, she's a woman, and we know that women in ancient times were not afforded equality. Um, They weren't afforded a lot of the rights um, and esteem and respect um, in the world surrounding this area. But they were women who didn't even have their husband anymore. They've experienced loss and death. So it's a woman who's alone. And in fact, the, the definition of widow in Scripture is a woman who's not only lost her husband, but very often has no one else to care for her. And so this is a very vulnerable person in society. And if she's given up everything she has, all of her savings to the church, and is counting on the church to meet her needs in a daily distribution, and she's getting skipped over, this is a life-threatening situation. She may have nowhere else to go to get her needs met. This is a big deal because... The church should have known better. They should have been looking out for widows. They should have known this is a very vulnerable person. And they didn't. They skipped it. They missed it. And that's part of the reason why it's a significant injustice. But we also know that it's not just all widows are being skipped. It's a certain subgroup of widows that's being skipped in the daily distribution. And it's the widows who are Hellenists. So this is a a dispute that's arising between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. So if we're going to understand what's happening there, we kind of have to know who these two groups are. At face value, a Hellenist is a Greek-speaking Jew, and a Hebrew is a Hebrew-speaking Jew, or or an Aramaic-speaking Jew. Language may not seem like that big of a deal to us, but you need to understand what's going on in the culture and why this is an enormous divide between these two groups of people. If you were to walk around first century Judea, if you were in Jerusalem at the time that this was written, you would experience a tremendous amount of diversity in this area. You would have seen people speaking a bunch of different languages. You would have observed um, a lot of different skin tones and cultures and ethnicities. Jerusalem was a very international kind of city, much like maybe you'd think of um, New York or London today. The reason for this is because um, of where Israel is located on the map. If you ever looked at um, sort of a map of, um, of that part of the world, you'll recognize that Israel is kind of at the intersection of Europe and Asia and Africa. And so all roads go through the Middle East and go specifically through Israel. So geographically, this is a very centralized and important place. And so if you are the Roman Empire and you want to extend your military might across the known world, you're going through Israel. If you are a tradesman and you want to sell your goods 
you are going through Israel to get to ports on the sea um, so that you can distribute your goods. And so we have to understand that we're in a place with lots of different races, ethnic groups, cultures, languages being spoken. And this story that's happening here is the story of two of those groups not getting along. (laughs) So the Hebrews are the children of Abraham. They live in Israel. They're Jewish. They speak the Jewish language. They celebrate the Jewish culture. They, They remember the Jewish history. And so for them to be Hebrew is not just a language. It's the entirety of their identity. It's their faith. It's their nationality. It's the language that they speak. It's their culture. It's their family. It's their history. It's everything that's important to them. And it was really important to them to be very pure as being Hebrews, you know, to to recognize and protect that. They're the majority group in this area, just simply meaning there's more of them in this than there are of the Hellenists. And the Hellenists are not from... Israel. They're Greek. And so they have some Jewish blood, right? So their ancestors were probably from Israel and forced to disperse under different military rule at different times. They still follow the Jewish religion, and some of them have moved back to Israel. But culturally and linguistically, they're Greek. And so the divide that's arising here is between the Hebrews, who are every bit Hebrew and Jewish, They're holding the faith. And the Hellenists, who were seen as less than. Who were a minority group for the simple fact that there were fewer of them. And so we know that divides and differences between different cultural groups are not a new problem in the world. We see it throughout scripture. Um, We know, in fact, that, um, that it was happening... Uh, in the Jewish churches before Christianity um, came. We know that actually, if we look down at verse 9, and this is just a fascinating little thing, in the same passage it says, um, there arose some from what is called the synagogue of the freedmen, which are Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen. We'll talk more about Stephen next week. But um, what this is telling us is that there was a synagogue, basically a, a Jewish congregation, that was made up of these non-Jewish people. So you had, you had the, the Hebrew synagogue, and then you had the synagogue of the freedmen. So the church was divided along these cultural lines, and we know that just because Luke records it for us here in the book of Acts. Really fascinating, the people who are at the synagogue of the freedmen. When you read Cyrenians, Alexandrians, and those from Cilicia and Asia, that would be Egypt, Alexandria, that's um, Africa. You've got... Asians, you've got Greeks, and you've got uh, Turkish people, Turks. And so you have um, these groups of people are in their own synagogue, separate and divided from um, the Jewish leaders in the Jewish synagogue. And so that, that divide that exists in the community and in the culture around the church is now rising up in the church. And so this is a real test at this moment because what we're putting to the test is whether this stronghold of cultural division that exists in the world around them is going to become a stronghold of division within the church. Or if the power of God is able to do something to break through and give an answer in a place where the world around does not have an answer and bring unity and justice um, when the world can't figure out how. So that's what's at stake here, and that's what it means when it says there's a divide arising between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. We won't spend that long on every verse, (laughs) okay? But I want you to understand what's happening here. Verse 2. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It's not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. So the twelve here is the twelve disciples, the twelve apostles. Those twelve men that Jesus called that followed him through his ministry are now in some kind of official leadership position in the church. So no longer are they just the followers of Jesus. They've now taken over a leadership role within the church. And you're thinking, wait a minute. Didn't one of the 12, like, betray Jesus and then hang himself and he's out? Shouldn't there be 11? Yes, but remember in Acts chapter 1, 
um, they nominated and elected a, a new disciple to take Judas' place so that they could keep the number of disciples at 12. The number 12 is an important number um, in Jewish culture. You know, there's 12 tribes um, of Israel. There's 12 um, months in the Jewish calendar, much like ours. And so, um, so 12 is like the number of completion. So 11 just kind of felt uh, incomplete. So they, they nominated someone else to take the place so they could keep the number of disciples at 12. And now these 12 guys are in charge of figuring out what to do about this fact that the widows aren't, aren't getting their food. In fact, gives us a little insight into the first thing that the church does right here. So when there's a problem in the church, and this is a real legit problem, um, the problem goes to the people who have the authority and responsibility to fix it. And so when there's, when there's an issue and when there's a problem that you have with someone and you go to that person to talk about it, that's when you have an opportunity to resolve it and come up with a solution and move forward. But if you've got a problem with someone and you go talk to someone else and someone else and someone else and someone else and don't talk to the person who the issue is with, that creates, that, that kind of gossip and backbiting kind of creates division and disunity. So the first thing the church does right here is they bring the problem to the people um, who are responsible to make sure that it's fixed. So the 12 summoned the multitude of disciples. And what did they do? They could have just said, all right, guys, here's what we're going to do. New plan. Um, you know, we're going to the widow's houses first, problem solved, let's get on with it. They didn't do that, right? They had the authority to fix the problems themselves, to take, like, a power position in solving this. But instead, they gathered the whole multitude. Interesting that by this point, Luke has stopped trying to count up how many people are in the multitude. Remember in Acts chapter 2, it's 2,000 people, and then it was Acts chapter 3, it was 5,000 people, and now he's like, it's a multitude, <laughs> Like, he's, he's done counting. It's multiplying. It's getting bigger. There's a lot of them. So we don't know how many people are gathered together, but the 12 disciples gather the whole group together, and they say, all right, guys, we got to figure out a solution to this problem. And so I love the humility of the disciples and the recognition that they need help and they can't do everything themselves to be able to say, all right, guys, let's solve this problem together. And so I'm not going to go so far as to say that this is a scriptural backing for a, like a democratic form of government, but it is, um, it is an emphasis on a democratic way of solving a problem within the church to say, all right, guys, this is our problem altogether. Let's fix it altogether. And I love that about our church is that's, um, that's kind of how we do things. Um, we have a voice in solving things together. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Isn't it fascinating, the list of qualifications that they came up with to solve this problem? They need men who are good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. What's the problem that they're having? It's a food distribution problem. It's a justice problem. Why didn't they say, we need seven men who are experienced in the food services industry? Why didn't they say, we, ha we need seven men who have good accounting and administrative skills, who can make sure that everybody gets an even portion? The skills are important, right? You, you have to have people who can actually solve the problem, but that's not what we're majoring on here. In fact, what we're majoring, all is, majoring on is all internal character stuff. And we need men who are of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. And so we see here a little insight, the emphasis that they're putting on inner character rather than on the outward appearance. We don't need men who know all the scriptures super well. We don't, need, we don't need men who know how to dress the right way or know all the right words to say. We need men who have good character. I decided I wasn't going to say anything about the fact that it was men but I'm going to say something about it. <laughs> Why men? This is a problem that's affecting women. It's affecting overlooked women. And it's men who are being called to bring the solution to the problem. We know that women are capable problem solvers. We know that women in many places in the Bible take important leadership roles and I don't think this is anything saying women can't or shouldn't solve the problems of the church. When I read this, I see him saying, okay, men, you should have been looking out for the women. 
You saw women who were overlooked, who were neglected, um, who were disrespected. Now step up and fix the problem. And so I think this is a call for men to step into the place that they should have been in the first place to make sure that they're looking out um, for people who maybe had less power and position. Um, so I think that still stands for us as men. That is one of our responsibilities as men um, to be keeping an eye for those who um, are neglected, who are disrespected, who are overlooked. Um, and I think part of being a man um, is looking out for people who are um, more vulnerable um, and using your strength um, for them. Again, not to say that women couldn't or can't solve problems. I think this is just saying men step up. That's my personal opinion. I don't read that in scripture. That's just, that's just me speaking. Okay, so, um, but verse 4, we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And this saying pleased the whole multitude. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch. Here's what I want us to notice about this list of seven men. As you read these names of these people who are going to solve the problem, it should stick out to you that these are not the kinds of names that we have been reading so far in the New Testament. This is not Joshua and Levi and Simon and Matthew. Those would be Jewish names. Those would be Hebrew names. In fact, the list here is a list of seven Hellenistic names. And so the problem is that the Hellenists are being overlooked in the distribution And the responsibility for fixing it, the leadership, the authority, the power, is given to the Hellenists to solve the problem. And so the group that is in the minority, that's out of power, is given the power to decide what's right for the whole group. And maybe our country could learn something from, rather than the people who are in power trying to always decide what's right for everybody, (laughs) if sometimes we let the people um, who are being overlooked uh, speak into the way things should go a little bit more. This is very significant because God cares about the empowerment of the powerless. God does not want people to be overlooked and neglected. And so I think it's a beautiful example for us in the church of the people who were being overlooked, one, were given the opportunity to solve the problem, and two, stepped up and solved the problem. And so sometimes when I'm the person who sees the problem, I'm perfectly happy to tell the pastor about it, tell the deacons about it, Tell the board about it. Tell the finance committee about it. You guys figure it out. Hey, this is a problem. I see it's a problem. Good luck. That's not what happens here. These folks said, hey, we have a problem. And the church said, hey, can you guys solve it? And they said, yes, we'll step up. We'll solve the problem. We'll fix it. We'll own the solution. We will be problem solvers, not problems. And I think that's a great example for us in scripture. So verse 6, they set these men before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. The laying on of hands in this case is a conference of authority um, and responsibility. So it's the disciples saying in front of everybody, hey, we are giving our blessing to these seven men to lead in this area. So the 12 apostles are now not going to be spending their time serving tables, although as we talked about last week, it's not that it's beneath them. It's that they feel a calling to be the people who are uh, constantly praying and delivering the word of God. And so they're publicly saying, These men are in charge of this responsibility. We bless them and empower them, and they go do it. Then, verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. This is almost a repeat of of verse 1. So verse 1, the first clause there, said the number of disciples was multiplying. So the church growth was happening. This threat, this challenge to the church growth raises its head, and at the end of it, the church growth renews, restores. In fact, it's a brand new breakthrough in church growth because now we have this additional note that a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. That's a big deal. The priests were the ones who were against Jesus the whole way through the Gospels. Those were the religious leaders who wanted him to be crucified, who were threatened by his authority. And now, what are they doing? They're becoming obedient to the faith. They're following in the way of Jesus. They're joining the church. I love that. Because no matter how opposed you have been to God in the past, it's never too late. You've never gone so far that God can't forgive you. You can always come back. And this is a beautiful example of people who have been against the way of Jesus the whole way through the story now becoming obedient to faith. 
And maybe it was this public example. Maybe it was Peter and John preaching when they got out of jail, and they went, what is with these guys? You know, maybe it was seeing that lame man healed, or maybe it was seeing how they responded and recognizing, you know what? We don't have any solution in our synagogues to this problem of division between people, but we see that Jesus has done something miraculous. And so we want to find out what's going on there. Whatever it is, we see that now there's a new breakthrough in growth as we see unity restored, justice done, and the church growing more. So having gone through that, let's take a look at some things that God loves and cares about. We are going to make a list of things um, as we go through that we can note from this story, things that God loves, people that God loves, and things that God cares about. Now, as we do this, I'm going to endeavor to not just put a list up uh, on the screen for us based only out of this passage. So we'll see if we can also recognize other places in Scripture that talk about this same thing. And part of that is because I would hate for you to think that you know everything about me and what's important to me based on just one interaction with me, right? So you see me on a bad day, and I'm in a grumpy mood, and I didn't say hi, or, or I was distracted, and I cut you off in traffic, and you recognized my car or whatever. Like, I would hate for you to go, man, that's Seth, what a jerk, <laughs> right? So, so let's take the whole thing into consideration and look at the full picture. We'll actually look a lot at Isaiah, because Isaiah has a lot to say about God's character um, and what God loves. But as we go through this list, um, we'll look for other places in Scripture to see if we can back up our observations um, about God's character um, by other places in Scripture. And the first thing that I suggest that God loves and cares about is God loves it when new people come to Christ. God loves it when the church grows. In fact, this is a theme throughout the book of Acts. Acts 2.41. Those who received the word were baptized, were added to that day about 3,000 souls. Acts 2.47. The Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Acts 4.4. Many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. Acts 5.14. More than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Acts 9.31. The church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was built up. Walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it was multiplied. Acts 13.49, the word of the Lord spread through the whole region. Acts 16.5, so the churches were strengthened in the faith, and they increased in their numbers daily. Acts 19.20, so the word of the Lord grew and prevailed mightily. Throughout scripture and through the book of Acts, we see this sort of viral thing happening where the church is spreading and the good news is going to new people. And this was God's plan when he said... In Matthew chapter 28, go into all the world and make disciples of every nation. This is our commission as Christians because God loves it when people are restored and redeemed and pulled from the hopelessness of their situation and called back into the purpose and identity that they were created for. And that is what God is doing here in the book of Acts. And I would say that's what God is doing in our lives and in this church. If you are in a place where you still feel hopeless, where you feel like you don't know what your purpose is, you don't know where you belong in the world, you don't know what you were created for, Scripture answers that question. And God loves it when we give our hearts to him, when we're added to the family of God, when our church grows. In fact, it even says angels in heaven celebrate. There's a party when new people for the first time put their faith in Jesus. God loves it when people come to Christ. What else does God love and care about? Well, God loves and cares about widows. So this group of people were the lowest point in society. They were at a low rung, but not in God's esteem. Not in the way that God looks at it. Isaiah chapter 1 verse 17 says this. Learn to do good. Seek justice. How do we learn to do good? How do we know if we're doing right? How are we seeking justice? Well, we're defending the fatherless and we're pleading for the widow. This should sound a little bit familiar. It's very like something that we know from James chapter 1. A lot of us can quote this verse that says, Pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble and to keep oneself unspotted from the world. And so we know that God loves widows. He's looking out for those that have no one else to look out for them. In fact, 
the more you read in scripture how God says to treat overlooked people, you'll recognize that he talks on and on over and over again throughout the Bible about caring for the poor, caring for the displaced, caring for the widows, the orphans, people who have no one else to love them. God loves them. The book of Psalms says God is nearby to the brokenhearted. And so we know that it's not just that God loves and cares about widows. He does. But in fact, God loves and cares about everyone who is oppressed, overlooked, and neglected. Maybe there have been times in your life, maybe now is one of those times, where you have felt overlooked in your life or in your family. Maybe you felt oppressed. Things have not been fair. Maybe you felt neglected at times, and maybe that's more than a feeling. Maybe that's a real thing. Maybe you have been someone who has experienced abuse and neglect. That is not God's plan for your life. God loves you, and he wants everyone to experience the wholeness and healing of being in his family and being reconciled by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so God's heart is moved for people who are overlooked, who are neglected, and who are oppressed. If nobody else sees, God sees. If nobody else cares, God cares. We know that God cares about the oppressed, the overlooked, and the neglected. And we know that God cares about the unity in his church. There's lots of places in scripture that talks about this. The first one that came to my mind was from John 17. This is from the high priestly prayer, so-called because it was Jesus praying for us in the garden right before he um, was crucified. And this is his prayer for us. I don't pray for these alone, meaning the disciples who are right in front of him, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's us, you and me. We're, we're people who believed in God because of the word of the disciples. So this is Jesus praying for us. That they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me and I am in you that they may also be one in us, that the world may believe that you have sent me. And so Jesus' prayer for our unity as a church is that we would be as unified and as together as the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit are. That's powerful prayer. That's a powerful unity that they experience from the beginning of time, and that's what God is praying for us. That's what Jesus is pouring his his heart out for, that we would be unified But I also wanted to look at this verse from Ephesians chapter 2. In fact, I'm going to turn to it. um, And if you want to stick a finger in Acts chapter 6, we'll come back in just a minute. Um, But I want to read a handful of verses from Ephesians 2. Because this is telling us something very specific um, about the unity that God cares about in his church. That's worth us understanding and paying a little bit of extra attention to. So when you think of Ephesians 2... Maybe you think of, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's kind of a a key tenet of our faith and and our our beliefs, our theology as a church. Or maybe you think of the very next verse, which says that you are God's workmanship. You are God's masterpiece, created in good works for Christ. Right after those two verses, Paul stops and says, let me explain who's saved by faith and what that means. Let me explain who is God's masterpiece— And so I just have two verses up here on the screen, but I'm actually going to read from verse 11 through verse 17 because I want to suggest to us here that God cares about the unity of his church and he gives special attention to people who are divided because of the things happening in the world. He's giving special attention to people who are divided because of cultural and ethnic differences. The Bible speaks about racial unity and racial justice. And Hebrews, or Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 17, are a passage that really clearly speak to this. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, Paul is writing to the church in Ephesus. Ephesus is in Greece. So he's writing to Greek believers, right? So they would have very much identified with the Hellenists in the story that we're talking about. So he's writing to Greek people who are now following a Hebrew Messiah, just like we are, okay? So he's talking to Gentiles. Gentile is anybody who's not Jewish. 
That includes a lot of us in the room, maybe most of us, um, and maybe all of us in the room. Okay? And so these words are for us as much as they're for the church in Ephesus. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, who are called the uncircumcision by what's called the circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that you, at that time, were without Christ. You were being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. He's describing that, that the hope of God had come to the people of Israel and Gentiles who were not part of the, the family of Abraham were separated. They were without hope. They were hopeless. But now, Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And so the divide that happens that he describes as a wall in the next couple of verses is overcome by the blood of Christ because Christ himself is our peace who has made both one, and he's broken down the middle wall of separation. He's abolished in his flesh the enmity, the the hatred, the resentment. That is the law of the commandments contained in the ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two. Which two? The Gentiles and the Jews. Thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death that enmity. And he came and preached to you, preached peace to you who are far and those who are near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and fellow members of the household of God. Paul is answering the question in this passage that our story today forced us to ask. And that is, is the dividing power of sin that tears apart our culture and our community and our nation, is that stronghold more powerful than the power of God to bring reconciliation? And the answer is, absolutely the power of God is more powerful than any power of sin in our culture, our families, and our lives. And so God cares about the unity of his church, and especially we see that he cares about unity between these different cultural groups. God calls us to be one, so that one day before the throne of God is described in the book of Revelation, we will all worship to God. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation, every people will worship God with one voice. We'll worship him together with one voice. And so our worship this morning is a little bit of heaven practice for us. We get to worship God with one voice here today. And we get to see in our midst some of the things that would otherwise divide people in the world around us do not have the power to divide God's people when they're living according to the power of Christ. So God cares about and loves the unity in his church. Furthermore, God cares about the justice for his people. So it was injustice that was causing the problem here today. It was People who were powerless being overlooked by the powerful. People who were in the minority being mistreated by the people in the majority. And so um, God cares about justice for his people. In fact, um, we know that. We can read it in Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18. says, the Lord will wait that he may be gracious to you. And therefore, he will be exalted. That he may have mercy on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Justice in scripture just means setting things right. Setting things the way they were supposed to be in the first place. God invented justice. God created a just world and then sin through the the fall of man and the temptation that happened in the garden brought about injustice. It brought about one person treating another person as less than and tearing them down. Taking what's mine and holding power and not caring about what happens to anyone else. So injustice is a consequence of sin. It's not God's original design. God's design is for things to be set right in the world around us. And God is a God of justice. Praise God. I'm grateful for that. (laughs) Because there's many times I don't see justice in my life. There's many times I see wrongs that aren't set right. And I know God is paying attention. Those things that no one else sees, God sees. And God is a God of justice. Two more. We know that God cares about the power of the powerless. We've talked about this a bit. 
already, um, but I will just point out that Isaiah chapter 40 says that God gives power to the weak. And to those who have no might, he increases strength. Those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. I love this verse. Um, And so the powerless here doesn't necessarily mean people who are weak and haven't done enough bench presses or or something like that. Um, It means people who aren't empowered in society. Um, So this is that overlooked and oppressed group. And what God is saying is he cares about giving strength and power to that group of people. God cares and loves, cares about and loves the power of the powerless. And finally, God cares about inner character more than he cares about outer appearances. When the prophet Samuel went to visit the farmer Jesse to anoint the next king of Israel, in 1 Samuel. He was looking at Jesse's older sons who looked the part. They were sharp. They were ready. They looked like leaders. But God had picked David because of David's heart. And God says this to Samuel. Do not look at the outer appearance or at his physical stature because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And I'm grateful for that because I want to be a person of good character more than I want to be a person with great fashion, which I'm not, <laughs> or, or good-looking or strong or, or meet somebody's expectations of, of what beauty looks like. Because here's what happens. The world will always tell you all the reasons why outwardly you're not enough. It will tell you why you're not smart enough good-looking enough, why your resume is not good enough, why your accomplishments aren't important enough, why, why your failures are too big for you to overcome in your life. And the world will often define us by our weakest points and our biggest failures. But that's not how God works, you guys. God doesn't look at the external things. God looks at our heart. And in God's economy, you are enough for him because he is enough for you. When God is enough and he shapes our character, then we become people of good reputation. We become people full of wisdom and full of the Holy Spirit as he pours it into us and shapes us into the people that he created us to be. And so maybe you're a person that feels like my reputation is badly damaged. You know, yeah, I want to be a a person of good reputation, but not there right now. Okay. All right, guess what? That's the work of the Holy Spirit. And God can restore the things that have been broken. He can renew the things that have been damaged. Maybe you feel like I'm not a very wise person. You feel like I'm just not that smart. Okay. The Lord gives wisdom. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, says Proverbs. And so as we obey the Lord, we increase in wisdom, just like Jesus did. Maybe you feel like I'm not really full of the Holy Spirit. That's not the kind of person I am. I know God cares about that character, but I I don't experience that. Like, I hear, I hear pastors talking about, you know, this experience they had with God, and, and I don't have that experience. God gives his spirit to those who ask. So pray. Follow God, and he will pour out his spirit in your life. He's faithful to do those things. And so if you read this list as an impossible list of being a good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, that's not impossible for any of us. What did we say earlier? If you're not dead, then he's not done. <laughs> Remember that? If you're still ticking, if you're still kicking, God's still working. All right? So, um, God looks at our hearts. All right. Remember our goal from the beginning? This is what we're trying to accomplish by making this list of things that God is like. Our goal is to understand God's character. So we're trying to understand God's character a little bit more. Understand God's love and the things that God cares about because we want to know him more. And we want to become more like him. So hopefully as we've gone through this passage, bit by bit, slowly this morning, we've started to understand some things that are important to God with maybe a little bit more clarity or perspective than we did before. That's my hope, that's my prayer for this message. But this list that we made is not just meant to be the list of stuff that God loves and that God cares about. In fact, this is meant to be a list of stuff 
that God's people love and that God's people care about. Because these things are important to God, they should be important to us. They are important to us. These are things that are important to our church and to the way that we live our lives. And so when we look at our lives through the mirror of Scripture, it gives us the opportunity for self-reflection to say, okay, God, am, am I living my life in a way that prioritizes the things that are important to you? Am I living my life in a way that shows that I love the same things that you love? Or if you looked at my life, would you see that I love being entertained more than this stuff? Or, or I love, you know, going to this place more than this stuff? Or I love anything more than this list. Remembering that the word love is in fact a verb. These are actions. We're supposed to do something about this list. And so, if God's people love it when people come to Christ, what am I doing to see more people come to Christ? What are you doing to see more people come to Christ? In your day-to-day life, in your walk, in your work, in your family? Are you inviting people to be part of what God is doing? Are you sharing the hope that you have with people who desperately need it? Are you talking about the identity that you found in Christ, the belonging that you found, maybe in your church family? Are you sharing that with people who aren't part of this? Are you speaking the name of Jesus in your workplace and in your family? Do you love the oppressed, overlooked, and neglected? Are you looking for opportunities to reach out to people that no one else has cared about? Are you trying to see people that everyone else is overlooking? What are you doing to support the unity of the church? When there's a problem in the church, do you go to the person you have the problem with? Or do you go to 20 other people? Do you, are you helping to be part of the solution when you see a problem? Are you volunteering? Are you raising your hand and saying, I will volunteer, I will work I will give my time to help solve this. I'm bringing it to the people who can actually be responsible for it rather than talking around it. Are you supporting the unity in God's church? Are, are you a person who helps there to be justice in the world around you? Are you looking out for those who are neglected, overlooked, abused? Are you looking for opportunities to set things right every chance that you get? Do you try to give, use whatever power you have for those who have less power than you. It's, it's just a fact of the way we see the world that we tend to look at those who have more power than us, those who have more money than us, kind of with a lens of like, well, if I had what they have, you know, then I'd be set. You know what those people who you're looking at that are doing? They're looking at people who have more money and more power than them. Everybody's looking up at somebody. But you know what Jesus did? He humbled himself. He emptied himself, he came to earth, he died on the cross, and he looked at people who had less power than him, and he reached a hand down and said, I want to be in relationship with you. And so every one of us, we could be looking at who has more money than us, who has a better house, who has more whatever, or we could be looking and going, who can I help? Who can I serve today? Because that, that self-emptying that looks to help other people, that's what Jesus does, that's Christ-like That's humility. Um, And so every one of us can use whatever power we have um, to help those who have less. And finally, um, are you putting more energy into your outer appearance or your inner character? Are you more concerned about your accomplishments, your resume, your sports, your bank account, what people around you think? Do you put more energy into your, your, your physical appearance? Or are you putting more energy into being the kind of person that God desires for you to be. Every one of us has that opportunity to choose between these two things. And guess what, you guys? When we do this, when we put our energy into caring about the things that God cares about, you know what happens? I'll tell you what happens. We have unity in the church. Our unity is restored and protected and blessed and maintained. We become people who are known as people of justice, And we give hope to the watching world that doesn't know how to see unity and justice and they see it happening here and they want to know what's different about you guys. And we can proudly say the Holy Spirit is at work here. What's different about us is that this is about Jesus and not about me.
And so when we do these things, we see unity restored, we see justice for God's people, and we see church experience breakthrough growth. We see new things happen that seemed impossible. People that seemed so far away from hope and from Christ will come to faith because we do the things that God cares about. We love the things that God loves. And in so doing, his spirit makes us become more and more like him every day. Let's pray. Father God, thank you for your work in our lives. Thank you for your love and thank you for this example in scripture that reminds us that we can look to you for the solution to everyday problems. Lord, when we need help and we don't know how to fix it, Lord, your word gives us an example to show us how to be humble, how to look for answers. We thank you, Lord, that the church here in the book of Acts found the right response to be an example to us. And I pray that for our church. Lord, I pray that when Townsend Church experiences challenges and threats to our unity and justice, to our growth, Lord, that we will be quick to get on our knees, that we will give ourselves quickly to the ministry of prayer and the word of God. And Lord, that we will rely on the Holy Spirit. And I do pray, Lord God, for breakthrough growth. Lord, I pray for people who just seem so distant and impossible to reach right now. Lord, that your Holy Spirit will do something amazing, miraculous, and incredible. And Lord, even if there's people in the church right now who are thinking of a loved one or a coworker or a family member, Lord, that's far away from you, whose heart seems closed, like maybe those priests' heart seemed closed. Lord, that we cannot give up in praying and interceding. Lord, knowing that you are a God who makes the impossible possible. So Lord, we love you. We trust you. We thank you for your word. Lord, may every day we get to know you just a bit more, a little bit better. We love you. And may you increase our love and help us to love you just a little bit more every day. And in so doing, Lord, we pray that you will continue to make us more like you.